Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing a novelist, Haruki Murakami. We're going to do him as a political theorist, but we are actually going to read some novels. In fact, we did read some novels, and now we're going to talk about them. So Haruki Murakami was a university student in Japan during the student protests, which took place in Japan in the late 60s, mainly in 68 and 69. He wrote a tetrarchy of novels a decade later, Hear the Wind Sing in 1979, Pinball 1973 in 1980, A Wild Sheep Chase in 1982, and Dance, Dance, Dance in 1988. We're going to focus on this group of four novels because they contain an allegory about Japanese politics. They also contain many insightful passages. For instance, in Hear the Wind Sing, you get this quote. A gulf separates what we attempt to perceive from what we are actually able to perceive. It is so deep that it can never be calculated, however long our measuring stick. What I can set down here is no more than a list. It's not a novel or even literature, nor is it art. It's just a notebook with a line drawn down the middle. It may contain something of a moral, though. If it's art or literature you're interested in, I suggest you read the Greeks, Pure art exists only in slave-owning societies. The Greeks had slaves to till their fields, prepare their meals, and row their galleys while they lay about on sun-splashed Mediterranean beaches, composing poems and grappling with mathematical equations. That's what art is. If you're the sort of guy who raids the refrigerators of silent kitchens at three o'clock in the morning, you can only write accordingly. That's who I am. This narrator is nameless but he has a friend called the Rat. The Rat comes from a wealthy family, but he detests the rich in principle. While other people from their hometown go to university, the Rat despises the university system and is never inclined to go. He is happy when his friends return from university to drink with him in their hometown, but he becomes sad when autumn arrives and they return to school, leaving him behind. Our narrator initially has a life that is not altogether different from the rats. He spends a lot of time drinking with the rat and having the sort of conversations young people have, estranged from the immediate pressure to make money. But as the novels progress and the 70s pass, the narrator is increasingly stuck in various unfulfilling jobs, shoveling snow, as he puts it, while the rat uses family money to avoid participating in the system. Our narrator attempts to cope with his situation by retreating into nostalgia and pursuing various women. In pinball, he gets divorced and goes on a quest to find a rare pinball machine he played in adolescence. It contains this passage about pinball, which might as well be about any video game. Almost nothing can be gained from pinball. The only payoff is a numerical substitution for pride. The losses, however, are considerable. You could probably erect bronze statues of every American president, assuming you are willing to include Richard Nixon, with the coins you will lose, while your lost time is irreplaceable. 
When you are standing before the machine engaged in your solitary act of consumption, another guy is plowing through Proust while still another guy is doing some heavy petting with his girlfriend while watching True Grit at the local drive-in. They're the ones who may wind up becoming groundbreaking novelists or happily married men. No, pinball leads nowhere. The only result is a glowing replay light. Replay, replay, replay. It makes you think the whole aim of the game is to achieve a form of eternity. We know very little about eternity, although we can infer its existence. The goal of pinball is self-transformation, not self-expression. It involves not the expansion of the ego, but its diminution. Not analysis, but all-embracing acceptance. If it's self-expression, ego expansion, or analysis you're after, the tilt light will exact its unsparing revenge. Have a nice game. The political allegory gains steam in the third novel, A Wild Sheep Chase. By this point, the narrator and the rat haven't spoken in some years. The narrator finds himself pulled into something rather bizarre. A representative of a secretive organization shows up and demands the narrator look for a missing sheep. If the narrator fails to find the sheep, there will be consequences. He will lose his job and his business will fail. The narrator is not sure he cares about losing his job because it's a rather tiresome job and he doesn't like it very much. But he decides searching for the sheep is a worthwhile adventure and he gives it a shot. As it turns out, the sheep has been ruling Japan this whole time. It possesses people and uses those people to dominate the economic and political system. While the sheep possesses someone, that person is immortal. But when the sheep is finished using particular people, it abandons them. A very powerful right-wing political figure was recently abandoned by the sheep. For his organization to survive, the sheep must be found. It must choose a new leader. Eventually, the narrator discovers that it's the rat who found the sheep, or perhaps the sheep found him. The sheep attempted to take possession of the rat, but the rat resisted. Before the sheep could gain control, the rat committed suicide. But even though the rat is dead, he appears to the narrator wearing a sheep costume. As the sheep man, he instructs the narrator to tell the representatives of the right-wing organization to come to a specific spot at a specific time. Under no circumstances is the narrator to accompany them. As it turns out, the rat has rigged an explosion. He kills them all. One might think this would transform Japan, but when we pick back up with the narrator in the fourth novel, Dance, 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 we find that the elimination of the right-wing organization has only allowed capitalism to intensify. The narrator repeatedly refers to Japan as an advanced capitalist society, and when he returns to the hotel he stayed at in the previous novel, the quaint hotel has been replaced with something extremely corporate and vulgar. It becomes clear that Japan has become something alien to the narrator, something he is not really part of at all. He comes across an actor, Gatanda, who was an old schoolmate of his. Gatanda is a celebrity, but his life is completely determined by the needs of capitalism. He has access to many luxuries, but is completely miserable. The love of Gatanda's life abandoned him, and he tries to fill the void with a series of prostitutes. But while these prostitutes are talented and Gatanda is often on friendly terms with them, the relationships are not real and do not make him whole. Eventually, Gatanda commits suicide. Our narrator becomes increasingly distraught over the course of the novel, as many of the people he knows and likes turn up dead. 
In this advanced capitalist society where everything is changing all the time, he becomes increasingly desperate for something permanent. He ends the novel, starting yet another relationship with yet another woman, after he repeatedly expresses to her his fear that she will disappear like everything else he values. It seems plain to me that in these novels, the rat represents the Japanese students who, in the late 60s, became opposed to the university system on the grounds that its purpose was to fashion them into cogs for a system they despised. Sheep are not native to Japan. They were brought to Japan from the West, and Murakami makes a point to say this explicitly in A Wild Sheep Chase. It seems plain to me that the sheep is a stand-in for the West. Post-war Japan is erected upon an alliance between the Japanese right and the Westerners. The system that the students despise is this system. For this system to continue, it must get a new generation of Japanese to cooperate with it. But the student left refused to do so. The Japanese right became concerned about the possibility of revolution. One right-winger, Yukio Mishima, organized a private militia and attempted to stage a coup. Together with four of these militia members, he took an officer hostage and barricaded himself in the man's office, tying the officer to a chair. Mishima read out a manifesto to the officer's men, hoping to inspire them to join him in staging the coup and replacing the constitution with something more traditional. Where has the spirit of the samurai gone? he asked. Mishima criticized the United States, declaring that it is self-evident that the United States would not be pleased with a true Japanese army protecting the land of Japan. The soldiers heckled him, and he committed ritual suicide, disemboweling himself. Mishima's biographers widely believed that Mishima knew, on some level, that he could not successfully stage a coup, that the purpose of the whole operation was to draw attention to his suicide. Murakami frequently mocks Mishima. He begins a wild sheep chase with a scene in which the narrator and his girlfriend are indifferent to Mishima's death. Quote, we walked through the woods to the ICU campus, sat down in the student lounge, and munched on hot dogs. It was two in the afternoon, and Yukio Mishima's picture kept flashing on the lounge TV. The volume control was broken, so we could hardly make out what was being said, but it didn't matter to us one way or the other. A student got up on a chair and tried fooling with the volume, but eventually he gave up and wandered off. I want you, I said. Okay, she said. So we thrust our hands back into our coat pockets and slowly walked back to the apartment. It is clear that Murakami sympathizes with the rat and with the students. He was one of them, after all. But by the late 80s, it is clear to Murakami that all of these struggles have just issued in a society that is more rapaciously capitalist than the one that went before. As the narrator enters middle age and is forced to grapple with the reality that his generation was unable to stop all of this, Murakami focuses on how the narrator continues to go on, on how he continues to keep dancing, even as death surrounds him. In that final novel, Dance, 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 the narrator meets the rat once more. As the sheep man, the rat offers to help the narrator make sense of things. Here are a few of the things the rat tells the narrator from the other side. You lost things, so you're lost. You lost your way. Your connections have come undone. You got confused, think you got no ties. You lost lots of things, lots of precious things. Not anybody's fault. But each time you lost something, you dropped a whole string of things with it. Now why? 
Why do you have to go and do that? Hard to do different. Your fate or something like fate. Tendencies. You get tendencies. So even if you did everything over again your whole life, you got tendencies to do just what you did all over again. Dance. You got to dance. As long as the music plays, you got to dance. Don't even think why. Start to think your feet stop. Your feet stop, we get stuck. We get stuck, you're stuck. So don't pay any mind, no matter how dumb. You got to keep the step. You got to limber up. You got to loosen what you bolted down. You got to use all you got. We know you're tired, tired and scared. Happens to everyone, okay? Just don't let your feet stop. Dancing is everything. Dance in tip-top form. Dance so it all keeps spinning. If you do that, we might be able to do something for you. You gotta dance, as long as the music plays. Dance, Dance, Dance presents a kind of post-political theory. The narrator is forced to confront the limits of political action and the degree to which the struggles in which he has participated have left him alienated from the world around him. With no more possibility of meaningfully intervening in public affairs, he becomes absorbed simply with the task of continuing on. This is the silent task of the ordinary person in an advanced capitalist society, a society where there is no alternative. After all, our narrator is an ordinary guy, the sort of guy who raids the refrigerators of silent kitchens at three o'clock in the morning. That's what I took from it. Alex, what did you think? There were quite a few references to wartime before and how natural it was for people to always be just dying in wars. And then also some comments about how war is unnatural and how American movies seem to celebrate it and make it seem like there's a happy cause or a happy ending to it. So the amount of people that end up miserable or dead, you know, or suicided here, it's as if it's like a continuity of that just in peaceful times, maybe. So, yeah, still a dark world. I don't know. Yeah, one of the themes in Dance, Dance, Dance is that there is this other world where people cry for all the things that we refuse to cry for, that we refuse to acknowledge. And in trying to make it out like World War II issued in a wonderful society, there's a sense that you know, the terrible, horrible things that came out of that war were not fully acknowledged. What do you mean There's a they cry for things that are not acknowledged, like characters do or... That's what goes on in that other world. You know, the sheep man in the other world says, you know, here in this other world, we cry for all the things that you won't cry for. You know, you've lost a lot of things and you don't fully acknowledge these losses. And in this other world, there is this, this weeping. The main character, the narrator, becomes aware on some level that in this other world, there is somebody crying for him. But as it turns out, what's revealed over the course of the novel is that he's really crying for himself, that this other world is the part of him that he doesn't properly acknowledge or properly deal with. It's not like that he can't really properly acknowledge or properly deal with because fully engaging with it is incompatible in some way with what he needs to do to keep going. But is that alternative world also have happiness or do they just cry about the loss? Because it reminds me a bit of Mars and Venus or Saturn and Mars or Saturn and Venus when he talks about life on different planets and how I think Venus or Mars is full of loss and death, but that's why they're such lovely people. Whereas Saturn's a bit cold, but very unequal. Hmm. 
Well, the sheep man says that there's no guarantee that he's going to be happy at the end of the novel. So there's a suggestion that this other world can do something for him. It can help him make connections or help him get a sense of meaning. Reconnecting with this other world can give him a sense of meaning, but it won't necessarily make him happy or solve his problems. And what are the paths into this other world? Well, in Murakami novels, nostalgia is very often a path into this other world. Thinking about things from the past or moments or places from your past, returning to places you've previously been, often allows you access to that other world. But also people, certain people give you access, people from your past, people that you used to have relationships with or used to relate to, that you then go to try to reconnect with. But the past... It's not like it's lost. The amount he's the amount of times he says, "Oh, this is my thousandth cigarette or beer, or you know, drink in the same old place with the same old people on the same old beach." So it's not like you have to rediscover it. It's already there, just being repeated. Well, one thing that happens, uh, you know, there's a guy Jay who runs a bar that the narrator often goes to in the first couple of novels, but he visits Jay less often as the story goes along. And that bar changes completely over the course of, of uh, you know, the narrator's life. It gets kind of founded and refounded two or three times. And each time it becomes something not quite what it was. And so while on the one hand, it does seem like he can just go to that bar over and over and over again and, and have this conversation with Jay. There's also a sense in which that is very much finite. And sometimes this loss sneaks up on the narrator. You know, the narrator thinks that the hotel that he stays at in Wild Sheep Chase, the Dolphin Hotel, will just be there when he comes back to it and dance, dance, dance. And when he gets there, it's in a completely different situation. It's called L'Hotel Dolphine in French. Because when the, they bought the hotel, the one demand of the guy who reluctantly sold the hotel, he didn't want to sell it, but he was being threatened by the Yakuza. His one demand that he was able to get them to accede to is that they have to keep the dolphin name in some way, shape, or form. So they kept it, but they changed it into a French name to make it sound more upscale. This is something that happens a lot for the main character. He thinks he will be able to return to stuff, but then when he goes looking for that stuff, it's not where he thinks it will be. Yes. He goes looking for the woman that he's seeing in a wild sheep chase and dance, 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 and, and cannot find her. Cannot find her. It turns out she's dead. Yeah. Is it true they can fill in the sea? They even dug up the mountains and filled in the sea and put in skyscrapers. Where? Yeah, there, there was very radical uh, and rapid transformation of Japan during the period in which Murakami is writing. You know, the country modernized. There was enormously rapid economic growth. Things changed a, a great, great deal so quickly that everybody was acutely aware of the change. And this Japanese you know, literature from this period is all about change as a result of this. You can't avoid it. The change that happens under capitalism, the flows and so on, we can conceal them from ourselves in countries where GDP growth is routinely 2% or 3%. And outside of iPhones and computers, there haven't been enormously radical changes in the last 30 years in, say, North America or Western Europe. But in Japan during this period, the change was very, very obvious and very, very quick. And you couldn't not talk about it. And some of the 
postmodern French literature that we've done on previous episodes, you know, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, Leotard. Some of it is about these libidinal flows, this rapid change, this acceleration. Murakami is also writing about that. And sometimes because he's writing about these rapid changes and these flows, he gets kind of grouped with postmodern literature, you know, the surrealism, the a lot of the tropes that go on in Murakami novels are very much associated with postmodern literature. But there is a reluctance with Murakami. He's not comfortable with these changes. He's not comfortable with these flows. There's no celebration of them or of the possibilities that they open up. Instead, it's very melancholic. He doesn't seem to say it's better before either. He describes it as like fishermen, shanty towns, and then says that the commuter town that replaced it complained at the shanty towns and basically kicked them out. Right. You also won't find any kind of return uh, traditionalism or social conservatism in Murakami. Murakami very much prefers the students to you know, the, the right. He is not at all interested in returning to pre-war Japan. And yet at the same time, he's deeply dissatisfied with the actual direction which Japanese society takes. And the effect of all of this is to leave him very alienated because there isn't some historical project he can sign up to, nor can he feel like the project that is ongoing in Japan is his. He's neither on the side of progress nor on the side of conservatism or return. He's just alienated. He's just on his own. The struggle that, that goes on now just has so little to do with him and what he values. Those values are not translatable. And in this respect, I think there is something very Leotardian about this, this sense that there's a world or a discourse or a way of interacting with things that can't be brought into the world, that can only exist in this other world, which is itself a projection of the narrator's mind or a, a world that the narrator slips into through uh, places where his memories or his sadness allow him to slip into it. When you mentioned Leotard, I got reminded a bit of this character, the boss, who apparently negated self-cognition and negates language. And so there's no, there's nothing left of the individual. It's just, you're either a communicating thing that exists or you're not communicating and therefore not existing. But he's like a fascist kind of, yeah, as you said, right wing figure. That seems quite postmodern, but yeah. Yeah, there, there's no appetite on Murakami's part for any of that. And yet the student movement isn't able to bring some other kind of society into being. So by the time you get to Dance, 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 there's this emptiness, this all-pervading emptiness that I think is very evocative of how many people feel nowadays in contemporary liberal democracies. You know, this constant returning to things from the past, you know, to a very large degree, culture, movies, TV of the last 30 years is, is constantly returning to the 80s, returning to the franchises and the pop culture of the 80s and relitigating these things for the purposes of squeezing nostalgia out of them. It's like on some level, things stopped moving forward. And yet at the same time, they've been changing very, very rapidly. The world is very different from the world of the 80s. Uh, and yet culturally, there's a, an attempt to in some way resist this change by returning constantly to the same themes and franchises and, and products that existed in the 80s. There's 
a rapid change on a material level, but a total resistance to this culturally. Yeah, he, he describes people in different parts as not wanting to learn anything, either about Japan or abroad. Just very much, yeah, happy. And also the figure of the rat kind of dreams about being a 19th century uh, Russian aristocrat as well, when he's touring the northern towns. So, yeah. Yeah, there are these occasional moments where you get a sense both that Murakami kind of wishes that he lived in a different place or at a different time, but also that he's acutely aware that that other place or other time wasn't altogether great. That initial quote about the Greeks, I think, is a great example of this, where there's an acknowledgement on the one hand that the Greeks you know, were freed up to do art and math, right? But the cost of that was this slave society. And so any nostalgia which Murakami might have for anything pre-modern is always qualified with an acknowledgement in some way of what that required or what that demanded. And yet when you look at the society without slavery, that society is also a deeply alienating society that is not satisfying and leaves him in this melancholic condition. So there's this all-embracing uh, despair that hits you by Dance, Dance, Dance in particular. This sense that there is no social or collective answer to this suffering that the narrator is going through, that it's something that uh, the narrator is just going to have to try to cope with in some way as he ages and he becomes more afraid and more desperate. It becomes harder for anything, anything to give him some kind of big picture hope. And so by the end, he's just trying to stay with this woman that he meets. So that he feels like in some way he's tethered to reality, that there's something constant, something that resists change that he can participate in. And in this way, I think Murakami suggests that some romantic relationships perform this function of giving the ordinary people a sense that there's something that they can stick to, something that's theirs. But interestingly, this isn't how the narrator interacted with his first wife. Because the narrator is married early on and then gets divorced very quickly. And most of the marriage takes place in between the two novels. You only hear about it after the fact. Um, but that initial marriage seems like a marriage the narrator got into just because that was the thing to do, just because that's what's expected, that's what's normal. Whereas this relationship that he gets into at the end of Dance, 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 he gets into for existential reasons because he's desperate. Yeah. And there's something more real or more authentic, it seems to be suggested about that relationship, because it's a relationship that he gets into for reasons of, of survival, whereas the first relationship is a relationship he just gets into because that's what is expected of a young man in Japan. I think he also talks about it as therapy versus it as pastime. Yeah. Yeah. And that it flicks yeah. between... That's something, uh, an area of growth for the narrator is that the relationships with women change from being a pastime or just something you do for, because that's what you do as a man, you, you go and have these relationships to something which does serve a, an actual spiritual or existential purpose. Not just a way of, of distracting, but a way of actually living. But then isn't the living not just something stable and peaceful, but also 
the risk and the danger. Maybe I'm leaning too much on the right wing figures when they talk about the mediocrity of society and how it's done away with chaos. So, yeah. And also, like you said, with the Greeks, how they had this, you know, slavery element, which allowed them to live fully. Like, is there a cruel aspect to to living fully, which is why he's kind of half dead in this modern society? It's not just you need to have the nice permanent stuff. It's also like, yeah, the, the loss of cruelty <laughs> in a perverse mm. way. Well, I think part of what's going on here is that the narrator is always an ordinary person. So even insofar as there might be some truth to the idea that in some ancient society, a small number of people could live as aristocrats, that would never be the narrator's fate in such a society because the narrator is mediocre and is ordinary. In that discussion about mediocrity, the narrator just straightforwardly acknowledges that he's mediocre. But then his girlfriend says that he's he doesn't realize he's amazing. He's only half living and that, yeah. I and mean, she might be a hallucination as well. We don't know. But- yeah, she says that to him in Sheep Chase. And then in Dance, 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 uh, you know, she reappears, but after she's dead. And then at that point, you know, she suggests to him that uh, that he's that he's wonderful, but not in a way that makes him able to be like like those kinds of figures it he ends up saying to the woman he meets at the end uh, in that last novel that he's just an ordinary guy he can't just do without her he can't just be self-sufficient psychologically without her he needs this this point of continuity and he suggests that if if he were extraordinary then perhaps he wouldn't need it which interestingly reminded me of, uh, this is a totally different piece of work, uh, but Jason Steele, the guy who used to run the Film Cow channel on YouTube, the guy who did uh, Llamas with Hats and Charlie the Unicorn, he wrote a short story called Why Does Someone Keep Wife Swapping My Wife, in which in a dystopian universe, a man is constantly having the... Uh, is constantly tormented by a bureaucracy which keeps substituting his wife with different wives and this drives him crazy he just wants you know the permanency which is given to him by a wife and at one point you know i think uh, i think it is the wife she tells him that he should be able to just uh, to to do without her he shouldn't have to have a wife he should be self-sufficient and he goes well i'm just not that special and i wonder if the point is is that he's just not that special or are any of us that special can any of us really manage without anything permanent i think some people look at the ordinary condition of people as something to be transcended or something that they can transcend but maybe that's not really the case or maybe it can only be done in some kind of of dark way you know this suggestion that it can only happen in a slave society or it can only happen in a society where the mediocre are turned into servants all right that seeking perfection is cruel in a way it's yes and then i I think there's a question about you know is anybody really that special and there are points where 
Murakami kind of entertains the possibility that maybe some people are special, but whenever he does, there's there's this emphasis on cruelty. I'm glad you mentioned this because it reminded me of a thread I didn't particularly discuss in Dance, 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 which is uh, in that novel, the narrator meets this young girl who's traveling around with her mother, who's an artist. And the artist uh, mother is an extremely inattentive parent because whenever she has any kind of artistic idea or she feels she needs to go to a particular place for artistic reasons, she just runs off and leaves her daughter behind or disembeds her daughter from whatever her daughter is doing and forces her daughter to come along. And Murakami's character ends up getting involved because when the daughter is left behind, he is tasked with helping her get home. And he becomes friends with her and they start calling and, and going for drives and hanging out. And he meets the mother. And when he meets the mother, there is this sense that, yes, the mother is a real artist, but also look at what this does to this girl, that she has this artist for a mother. There's something very frustrating to the narrator about how the daughter is treated because the daughter also has something extraordinary about her, but it's not being nourished by this artist mother who is concerned only with her art. And maybe the art is wonderful. It's not suggested that her art is necessarily bad or that it's necessarily pretentious or that there's anything necessarily wrong with it. Uh, but it, it comes with this cost. There's another character who hangs out with the mother called Dick. And Dick is uh, a guy who is a poet, but not a, a very famous or very heralded poet. And he sacrifices his poetry so that he can help this artist mother to do her work. So he is always traipsing about after her and meeting her needs and, and preparing her food and keeping her house in order and so on. And he doesn't get a lot of appreciation until he's killed. And then after he's killed, the house falls into disorder and she you know, realizes that he was really very great. But a short time after that, she begins to forget him and to move on as she gets once again re-immersed in her art. But the narrator sees the sacrifice that Dick made for that art, you know, for her. He got sucked into that, that thinking that she was making wonderful, amazing art. And so he sacrificed himself literally in the end so that she could make art. This is something that it seems Murakami wrestles with throughout these novels, the sacrifices that are necessary for real art to occur, and whether those sacrifices are worthwhile. And how does the ordinary person who isn't capable of making that kind of high art, what, what's to become of them? Should they just follow around these artists and do whatever's necessary so that they can make art? Is that really really what should happen to them if there really is this sharp distinction between the mediocre people and the artists. And then, of course, he says you know, that, that he can only write accordingly, that the novels that you're reading are not art. He says they're not art. Are they not art? Or is there something wonderful about this kind of novel? But then this, this novel, the first two novels here, they're what Murakami calls his kitchen table novels. They're novels he wrote in the morning at his kitchen table before he went to work. Early in his career, he was running, I think it was a bar with his wife. And he wrote these novels before going to work 
few hours in the morning at the kitchen table. So they were things he wrote around his work. They weren't novels that he wrote in the way that the artist he describes in Dance, 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 you know, creates. He didn't have a bunch of people helping him write the novels, making his life easy. He was squeezing them into the margins of his life. And Murakami suggests that because of this, what he's written can't rise to the level of art. It doesn't have the assistance that art would require. Though in looking at at these novels, I, I think that there is a lot that's deeply profound about them and very insightful. I would like, yeah, I would like to ask more about what's profound, but also challenge that the main character always makes aesthetic opinions, even though he's not an artistic guy. He's always critiquing like the adverts or, you know, the, the staleness of the smells or, you know, the, the way the light bounces off things. Not in an overly artistic way, though, just in a normal way. Yeah, there is this kind of creation that isn't art in that, in the sense in which the right wing you know, uh, guy would recognize it as art. You know, he wouldn't consider what this guy does art. He would consider it mediocre. And indeed, for the critics who like high art, Murakami has always been considered a little bit poppy and a little bit too accessible and a little bit too, you know, for everybody. To be really a you know a great you know high tier novelist, right? But uh, there was, I think, in the twentieth century, this idea that maybe ordinary people could do more than you might think, and maybe if you gave them the resources to do more, they might be able to do more. And in the twentieth century, you know, especially after World War II, and you had the creation of these welfare states and um, you know, funding for the arts and. You know, there were opportunities for more people than had ever managed before to uh, cross into the arts from other economic classes, from other parts of life. It was you know, briefly possible for the children of working class parents to become artists and novelists and, and academics. And it was briefly possible for you know, the children of middle class parents to do all of this. And, and not, you know, it's not as if everybody did it, but it was possible to a much greater degree than had ever prevailed before and to a much greater degree than now you know today it's very difficult to become a you know an academic in the humanities or an artist if you don't come from a lot of money it's getting really really hard to do that uh, this possibility is closing up once again and so there's this lost world of possibility and i think that lost world of possibility is part of what the narrator is weeping for, this sense that maybe something else could have happened. And the rat in, in dying is symbolic of that possibility. You know, the rat would have, would have been part of making something else, might have been part of making something else, but that was snuffed out. The rat seems quite comfortable picking up all the trades of all the different towns and finds them quite similar. Like, if you can acquaint yourself with one town, you can acquaint yourself with all of them kind of thing. And he enjoys it, actually. But maybe that's just yes, his letters the, being a bit, yeah, misleading. The rat uses his money to travel around, you know, his family money to travel around and try different things and try different lives and, and see what matters. The rat can explore freely what matters because he's got family money. So he just kind of hops around and does whatever it seems right to him to do. But this is something that a lot of people today, you know, 
even those who come from families with some money would be frightened to do, you know, just go and leave home and get a regular job, regular blue collar job, doing blue collar work in some town for a while. Yeah. And if you run out of money, go home to your parents or go on to the next town and try something else. But the rat does that, that experimentation. He's able to do that in part because there is somewhere to return to if things don't go well. And yet at the same time, he doesn't really want to be there. He doesn't like his family very much. He doesn't want to live as a rich person. So he goes in, on these adventures into blue collar life, but always you know, with the possibility of returning to his family and being safe with them if things didn't go well for him. And he ends up at the house that his father owns. You know, that's where he meets the sheep, is returning to this house that belongs to his father. Yeah, it seems like he did every job apart from the white collar ones, where you have to have two day, two days in one day in terms of- Well, he opposed the university system, so how could he do white collar work? Okay. He never went to college, right? He never went. So he can't do that kind of work. But then because he had money, he was never worried about only having the money he could make from a blue collar job. In some ways, the rat reminds me a little bit of uh, you know, the uh, Hindu god Brahma who you know, disguises himself as different people because he's bored uh, in uh, certain versions of, uh, of the Brahma story. Brahma gets so bored of being a god that he disguises himself from himself as an ordinary person and goes and does an it lives an ordinary person's life to see what it's like. And uh, sometimes it's suggested that that's everyone, that everyone is Brahma hiding himself from himself. And that all of the lives that everyone is living is, is just a way for Brahma to entertain himself. And you get the sense that you know, the, the rat, because he comes from money, has a, a boredom that he deals with by adopting the lives of different blue-collar people, trying different blue-collar trades, trying different towns, and, and adopting these different lives, all as part of this resistance he has to university life and to the, the life of aspiration that is otherwise laid out for young men from well-to-do families in Japan. You know, the life that's committed to the traditional institutions and the firms and the companies and all of that. No, no, the rat doesn't, doesn't do all of that. But the rat also is not authentically blue collar. He just plays at it. But he's authentically against the university system, but unauthentically blue collar. Yes, because he always has the option of returning home. Whereas people who are really working class mm. don't have the option of returning to rich parents. So the rat can kind of play at these different lives without really committing to them. But the protagonist does have the survival pressure. So yes. he's more meaningful. And that's what makes the narrator different. The narrator really does have to find a way to keep going. And so the narrator does end up doing these jobs where he writes, but he doesn't write anything that's any good. Most of his writing is, you know, schlocky magazine pieces. And in Dance, 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 he repeatedly refers to it as shoveling snow. What he does is just like shoveling snow, but with words. 
It's not really different from blue collar work. It's just that words are the thing that he moves around. And the words don't really have any meaningfulness. And even when he puts in a lot of effort, which he does because he has a sense of work ethic and integrity, even when he puts a lot of effort into a piece, nobody can tell the difference, really. The difference between a piece that he puts a lot of effort into and a piece that somebody lazes through is almost imperceptible to the ordinary reader. Is it implicit that like people are satisfied with that kind of work on account of the concentration and the tolerable life it gives, and it's not too intolerable. I wouldn't say so. You know, one of the there's a business partner that is introduced in um, Pinball, I think, and the business partner when he leaves in Wild Sheep Chase to go on, you know, in search of the sheep, the business partner is forced to figure out what to do without him, and he suggests to the business partner that what he should do is downsize the company. Because the work is is making him miserable. It's driving him to drink. It's you know, ruining his life. He should just downsize the company into something more manageable. Uh, there is this suggestion that the narrator is initially reluctant to take from the business partner that they made a mistake in, in building up this business because the more successful the business is, the less happy they become. So I, I think that to some degree speaks to your point in that they're happier doing more ordinary work than they are having a business that's successful. But also this, this complaint about shoveling snow suggests that the ordinary work is also not particularly satisfying. And one thing that the narrator does suggest in Dance, Dance, Dance is that maybe he should write something for himself, something that isn't just shoveling snow. But then there is this question you know, of would that amount to art? Would that be anything really worthy? And I think Murakami was himself asking that question when he began as a novelist. He'd like to write something, but would it would it amount to anything? Would it be worth making? Well, I'm I'm still not sold on whether they're happy with their pastimes or not, because in a way it's mocking it, like, oh another cigarette, another beer, another dive bar. But and also it's like, oh, this is great. It's so simple, yet we can just milk it for pleasure endlessly. And I can't tell which, is it just a bit of both? It's like, eh, it's a bit crappy, but it'll do. And it doesn't matter if it's not the most meaningful thing. It lacks meaning while they're doing it. And then after the fact, they try to attach meaning to it. The nostalgia. And this is the nostalgia. So the nostalgia is the attachment of meaning to something meaningless. And Pinball is the novel that really gets it at this aspect, because it's straightforwardly acknowledged in pinball that pinball is really a quite awful, meaningless game. And yet, because it's from the past and the character is looking for something to root himself in, he attaches enormous importance to pinball. So the emphasis there is not on pinball's capacity to actually provide meaning, but nostalgia's way of, of manufacturing a meaning where there really wasn't one to try to give a life that doesn't have a sense of purpose, a sense of purpose. It's not fair though, because nostalgia you think is for th meaningful things. So why does he make it about meaningless things? Is that just a- Well, this is, this is part of the, the critique of nostalgia that Murakami engages in, which is that ultimately the things that you get nostalgic about are not the meaningful things. What you get nostalgic about are the things that are banal 
when you are initially experiencing them, but which in an attempt to try to say that you have been on some kind of meaningful journey, you then attach or attribute importance to at later stages. So it's like- So you decide that pinball matters and you chase down this obscure pinball machine that you played many years ago. Now, I think a lot of people do this in various ways. You go and listen to old music. This gets talked about a lot, how he goes and listens to music from a while ago. But what does that really accomplish? It's sad though, if you compare, you know, not just the music, but your work, your life, your friends to pinball, he's like saying, he's critiquing all of it and saying, ah, it's all pinball. It's not really as fun as you think or meaningful. At least while you have the attitude that you have as a young person to those things. You have to be mature. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a quote that is uh, often attributed to Confucius that you, know, you have two lives, the life before you realize that you only have one life and the life after that. And so there's this suggestion that you know, perhaps some of these things that are like pinball when you're doing them in the first life become something else in that second life. But simply because they're a portal to a time where you didn't have that perspective of I'm going to die, not because in themselves. They give you back the mindset of I'm not going to die. Well, I'm not sure. It, it might also be that that when you've really adequately made the transition, you get in some way past the nostalgia and into something that is of the present moment. At the end of Dance, 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 he gets into a relationship that's very of the present moment, but he has a reverential attitude to it. Whereas whenever he was with women in the previous novels, he didn't have that kind of reverential attitude to it. He had a very casual attitude. And at one point when he's with one of the prostitutes in Dance, 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 she compares what she does to his shoveling snow, that the sex that she has is a lot like his writing. It's just something that he does, it, it, uh, that she does. It isn't something that creates meaningful relationships. And to a large degree, his previous relationships have been more like the, the prostitution than they have been like the relationship that he forms at the end of Dance, Dance, Dance. And that there is just this disposable quality to them, the particular people he's with, he never fully appreciates. At one point in Wild Sheep Chase, the sheep man says to him, because he brings his girlfriend with him to uh, look for the sheep man, uh, he says to him that he should never have brought her, that it was a completely selfish impulse on his part to bring her, and that because he brought her, he will never see her again. There's this suggestion that women for, for the narrator are just, uh, are not properly understood or valued until the end of Dance, Dance, Dance. That it's something that only very gradually he's able to come to. In fact, there's a scene early on in Dance, Dance, Dance with the woman that he ends up with at the end of the novel, where he has an opportunity to sleep with her, but declines because he feels that the moment is not right for that. And that is an interesting moment because it's the first moment, really, where the narrator has seemed that level, uh, has seemed to have that level of reflectiveness about his sex life and about women. And that ultimately allows him to have a much deeper and more meaningful relationship with her than he has with any of the previous women that he is interested in. But it's only because he 
doesn't just treat it as a pleasurable experience to have, as something to consume or as something disposable. And maybe this is the suggestion that for the ordinary person, the way to avoid or escape the consumer society, you know, the advanced capitalist society, is to have a meaningful relationship with someone that can't be consumed, that isn't just a consumption relationship. Of course, if you put all of the weight and expectation that formerly was put into all of social and political life onto one person, that results in a kind of cloying grabbiness. And you see some of that in the desperation of the main character to be with this woman late in the novel. He is just completely obsessed by the end of it with her because all of the meaning that hasn't been able to attach itself to all these other things, it all ends up being thrown at that relationship. And so on the one hand, there's a suggestion that this is a much more meaningful kind of relationship than was possible before, but also that this fixation and obsession with romance is is kind of suffocating. You're not sure at certain points whether she's just going to find him creepy and tell him to, to go away because he becomes so intense. And with previous women, he's very casual. He's very cool. There are a few suggestions throughout the these novels that the narrator is too cool. He doesn't take things seriously enough. He's not sufficiently invested in, in the world around him. But the alternative to that, becoming completely obsessed with this woman, it's, it's a little much. And you wonder if that can really be a sustainable solution for him. I'm still not sure on what it means to have a, a commodity or a consumer relationship, because surely you, if you consume it, you can just produce it again, right? So you can just consume, produce, consume, produce in a capitalist way that is self-fulfilling or self-regenerating. So what's evil about that? Or not evil, Well, or just distasteful. I think the suggestion here is that it is psychologically insufficient, that the, the consumptive relationships that he has don't bring him a sense of meaningfulness. And because they are consumptive, by the time he even realizes that he got anything from them, they're gone and over with, that he's just kind of going through the motions in these relationships. He's not really connecting to eternity. He's not part of anything. He's separated and estranged. He's forced to be an individual. When you say part of something, you ha does that imply part of the whole and the whole is all time? When you say eternity... Like a heaven concept, well, not necessarily just yeah, or some kind of spiritual or metaphysical. You know, we might think of it as as a kind of uh, connection to the one or connection to to something. You, you get the sense in these novels that Murakami is not someone who thinks that people are objects in a kind of deterministic uh, schema. He tends to attribute that to the fascists. But also, he is not someone who thinks that we really are isolated individuals who ought to have our own little worlds, that we ought to be connected in some way to one another. There's this emphasis in Dance, Dance, Dance on there's you know the, these strings that need to be connected. He needs to be connected in some way to other people. And he's lost all of these people. He's lost all of these connections. And he's feeling individuated. And he's stuck retreating into his own mind and into his own memories as a way of trying to find meaning because he's not really connected. He's atomized. 
and Murakami rejects the atomization that comes out of this uh, and the, the obsessive consumptive individual just as much as he rejects the objectification of, of the fascist. And this leaves him with a kind of gulf because they're, these seem to be the alternatives on offer to him, a kind of, uh, uh, of total objectification or a kind of uh, total isolation of the individual from everything else. And this question of how do you get a sense of connection? Well, he comes back to the romantic relationship, which I think in general is what many, many people do in your Western life in recent decades is to, to say, well, what will really give my life meaning is to find the one or to find the romantic partner. But this does substitute for all of these other connections that we might otherwise have or these other this uh, rootedness in a world that we might otherwise have. Our inability to create a world in which we are rooted compels us to look for this intense connection with one other person. So instead of the narrator becoming embedded in a world, the narrator uh, becomes embedded with one other person in their private world. And one other person is something additional over and beyond being stuck in that world by himself. But it's still not the same as having successfully produced an entire social model in which he can be rooted. And there is always this sense in these novels that that the inability to do that is a loss that you can never just straightforwardly make up for. The inability to have, to have actually done politics, the failure of the students to actually create the new society is not something that you can ever fully move beyond or do without. There will always be a consequence to the fact that that society was not created. And in this sense, it's a kind of uh, of nostalgia for a certain kind of, of sense that uh, a type of socialism was possible, that at one point in time, perhaps a type of socialism was possible. And that type of socialism can no longer exist now. In some way, that type of socialism was killed or murdered. Because it wasn't radical and enough. We, or... Or just because... For various reasons, I'm not sure Murakami has a straightforward answer to why the socialism failed to survive, but it did. You know, the protest movements and, and all of that stuff out of the 60s failed to actually materialize in revolution. It had all of this talk of revolution around it, but it didn't issue in that. And so the fact that that didn't happen marks all of the people who were students at that time. You know, they are always living in the world that they failed to change. They will always be in that world. And there are things they can do to make that world livable for them that enable them to go on living in that world. But they can never change the fact that they're living in the world that they failed to change. They talk about the next generation being the judges, although it's up to them to decide. Like we've, we've lost our chance. The, the, the yeah. owner of the, bar, the dive and bar in, says that. Yes. And in Dance, 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 the, the girl that he's traveling with, uh, you know, is, is, he has this frustration because she is not getting the world that she should have gotten or that she deserves. You know, her mother who's making art is not giving her that world. Um, but also he submits himself to her judgment a lot. And sometimes he feels that she judges him unfairly, but nonetheless, he wrestles with it. 
it's not a super, you know, philosophically specific or schematic kind of political theory, but I do think that this is a very honest take on the 60s and the consequences of the 60s, and it's much more honest than most of the takes I think we tend to get. And uh, if you have to get there by reading novels rather than by reading straight political theory, I don't think that's such a bad thing. I do think you, you get somewhere with Murakami. But you have to have a certain patience because when it comes to novels, novels always take you there in a more indirect way. You have to stop and smell the roses when you read novels. You have to sit with the atmosphere of the thing. And I think to really grasp the 60s and the aftermath of the 60s, to really grasp it, you have to sit with the atmosphere of the thing. And Murakami makes you do that. And when you read other theorists who are clearly shaped by the 60s, we've read a number of them at this point. You know, to go back to the Deleuze and Guattari episode or the Leotard episode or what have you, you know, the Habermas episode. None of that really gives you the, the sense of, of loss that surely, surely must have been felt. There's a grief aspect. I think it comes through really effectively here. Yeah. The, the staleness of the society is, yeah. It also helps that I'm 31, you know, when you're in your thirties, you're about the right age for this kind of thing. Why? why Cause you think you've seen or you've perceived enough cycles. Cause the narrator himself is, you know, moves into his thirties and it's as he moves into his thirties that he starts to reconsider all of this stuff about his twenties that previously seemed straightforward, but now no longer does. You know, it all becomes much more complicated when, you know, in my case, my dad died a couple of years ago and, you know, now I'm 31 and it does change the way you see things. When you start to go, Hey, wait a minute, you may not get infinite chances to figure things out. And there's, it's hard to substitute the passage of time there as a teacher with that kind of lesson. At one point, he says that to the little girl in Dance, 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 that, you know, you know a lot of things, but you don't know very much about time, and there's no way I can teach it to you. There's no way I can teach you about time. You just have to, have to get to know it. Anyway, we're over the hour, so I think we'll leave it there. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.